Hi, everybody. I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. We've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic, and we've come up to our, our year. We've been doing this for a full year. This is webinar number 182. And I know, can you believe that? And uh, tonight, I'm so happy to have Raquel Butler from Australia return. She is a fabulous veterinarian down there who's doing research on, on uh, fitness training and rehabilitation. And so welcome, Raquel. It's so nice to have you again tonight. Yeah, hi, Wendy. It's great to be here. So Raquel, just in case people don't know your background, can you just give us a brief overview? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I graduated as a vet in 2004. Um, had horses my entire life, pretty much. Ridden horses and competed and all of that. Um, I was a vet for like doing vet work, mixed practice and small animal for seven years. And then I was always interested in alternative therapy so even when I was in vet school I was interested in that um, so I did Bowen therapy equine muscle release therapy first um, and then I did that on dogs as well trained on dogs too and then I did the graduate diploma of animal biomechanical medicine um, and I started my own business in 2012 I think integrated vet therapeutics um, and then I, the graduate animal biomechanical medicine is chiropractic, osteopathy and rehab um, techniques. And then I worked in my own business for a number of years. I, I was mentored by Sharon May Davis in um, anatomy and biomechanics. And I've done a lot of horse dissections with her and a few on my own. And then I took a job at Charles Sturt University in Wagga, um, teaching in equine science, so locomotion, disease, injury, rehab, and the equine athlete. So I've been here now for, I think this is my third year? No, maybe my fourth year. My <laughs> fly, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment, a bit of my background. Oh, that's I didn't realize that you'd spent a lot of time with Sharon May Davis. We had her. Oh, on. like she's, she is the reason that I'm here today. <laughs> like, oh, wow. Yeah. No, her webinar actually is the most watched yeah. webinar of all my webinars. Um, yeah. ECVM. And I would love to have her come back so you can put in a good word for me. Yeah. Like she has taught me uh, so much of what I know and I wouldn't be in this position without her. Yeah. She's brilliant. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I, I learn something from my guests every time and it's so much fun to hear your background because I Either I, you said it and I forgot it or I didn't remember it, but either way, it's just really fascinating to see how people wind up doing what they're doing. So, yeah. so in your position at Charles Strutt, currently you're, you're teaching as well as doing research, correct? Yeah. <laughs> as well as I still have my own business and I still treat horses and do a lot of other stuff. Okay. Well. Overachiever. <laughs> yeah. Overcommitted. But that's great. Um, so we're so glad you made some time for us this evening. So what are we going to talk about tonight? So we're going to talk about um, training issues or physical imbalance. So I do have a bit of a presentation, but so it'll mostly be me talking. I'll make you co-host because I forgot to do that. Mm -hmm. There we go. So you can share your screen. Um, hang on, I'll just... Yeah. Yeah, that's See which, oh, now I can't see. Yeah, 
There we go. Uh, which screen are you looking at? You're looking at uh, a, a sunset with trees. Oh, you're looking at that screen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I have too many screens. Okay. Um, Just unshare that and then you can choose the other one. Yeah. Okay, if I put that over there. Sorry. That's okay. I, I totally get it. <laughs> it's Last really great. You couldn't share. Screen. screen wouldn't share. So we took a little while to get that technical difficulty sorted out. It's yeah. totally okay. Um, okay, screen share. So I want to screen share that one. Optimize that. Okay, now can you see the presentation one? Yep. And this is uh, such a great topic because uh, you know, it's right where I've been thinking about physical imbalances a lot. Yeah, it's massive. And I mean, I could, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep this one like condensed and not go on forever and ever about it. But like, as I was putting it together, there's just so, there's just so much to it. And I really think that we underestimate it um, hugely. So I'll try to do it justice, but each area could easily be a presentation on its own. Like we are each... always happy to have you come back. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how we go. Okay. So, um, hang on, it's going to change. So, uh, I wanted to share with you a little bit about my story and my horses that have actually taught me uh, the difference between training issues and physical imbalances because. As a young rider, I always put it down to a training issue. I didn't know any better. And um, I didn't recognize what my horses were trying to tell me. <laughs> so this is one of the horses that has inspired me. Um, he was an off the track thoroughbred and he was actually oh, like eight or nine when he came off the track. So he was quite, he'd been a very successful racehorse. And that's why he was so late in coming off the track. And I had him just to, for an interim period to retrain him. Not that he needed, like he was very well-mannered. Um, and then he was to be sold. Um, and now I look back at these videos and photos and I want to cry every single time because I realised that he, he never complained. Um, I think the most he complained was when I'd tie him up and leave him by himself. But otherwise, when I rode him, he... He never bucked, he never pigrated, he never bolted, he never did anything wrong. But I look back at the photos and I see so much tension in his face. I see that he couldn't engage his hind end. I see how flat he is behind my saddle and how it, there's no lumbosacral movement. Um, I see that he's sweating in this, in this flank area, which is quite an unusual place to, like, be the first place to sweat and it tells me that he was overworking through this area to try to pull his hind limb along. Um, I see the tension in his mouth, I see that my saddle doesn't quite fit right and um, I see I'm trying to be soft but uh, that he was just kind of stuck in the position. Um, and he had trouble cantering especially in one direction and he's uh, transitions were atrocious. Um, not that he did anything, as I said, behavioural. He just struggled with them. And now if I hopped on a horse like this, I would get straight off. 
and realize, oh crap, there's a lot of things I need to deal with um, in this horse. So like this horse went on to be sold and I actually found out his story a few years later. Um, he went on to be sold and the owner actually jumped him. And when I found that out, I, my heart sank because I thought, oh, his body just would not have coped with that. And then in the next sentence, she said, yeah, one day he fell um, and he injured her um, and he injured himself. And, and I thought, yep, okay, well, that makes sense. And that's really sad that that had to happen. Um, and then he, she persisted with him for a bit and she adored him. She treated him really well. Like he went to a really good home, but uh, in the end, she put him down because she could see that he was in pain and that he was not coping with life. So he did, she did the best thing by him, but it's unfortunate that she got injured in that process. And I think if we can understand more where, if we can recognize these physical issues before that, like we shouldn't have to be injured and, and fall. And I've heard so many stories where trainers, and I apologize for any trainers that are listening, but hopefully you're, you're aware, but, I've heard so many stories where trainers have pushed riders and the riders have said to me later, I knew my horse wasn't right. And I knew that I should have got off and they didn't and they were pushed and they fell off um, and they were seriously injured. And I think if we can recognize these issues a lot sooner, then we can avoid that happening. Um, so yeah, he's one of those horses that has um, taught me a lot. And then the other horse, which if you're on my Integrated Veterinary Therapeutics Facebook page, you would hear a lot about Patch. <laughs> and she's a pony that um, when I got her was 13 years old. She's been worked since she was two. So she was um, in proper work from when she was two by a kid. Um, and they kind of grew up together and learned everything together. So I was looking for a horse to ride and I and I was at my client's place and they said, oh, do you want to take Pat? So I hopped on her and they put the bridle in her mouth and I hopped on her bareback. And um, she, as soon as the bridle went in her mouth, she just, and I said, I'll take the bridle off or just ride her in halter. So I put the halter on, she walked trot and canter and I said, okay, she can do the basics. So I'll, I'll take her. <laughs> so I got her home and, you know, for my riding horse and I, started riding her and then uh, my mind was like, mm, this is not right. Uh, she just wants to go fast and she's just bracing and there was no bend. Um, and the more she pulled on me, the more I pulled on her. Uh, and I realized, okay, this is not gonna be a riding horse for me. So I hopped off and I have treated her. I've had her for, um, going on three years I think and so she was so braced her whole body was braced when she trot, she just hold her back up and everything was braced and then her legs would just move she would shy and she would shy like a, a meter or two um at at stuff sometimes I didn't know what she was shying at she would always have her whole face just crinkled up and if I'd go to catch her she'd walk away from me um, when I tried to do any groundwork with her the whole time, she was just really grumpy about it. She would run from a whip. If I had a whip, she'd just be scared of it. She'd kick out. It says she'd kick out at the ship. Obviously, she'd kick out at the whip. Um, 
she always just had a a um, default low head position. So she just always want to drop it to the ground. And they just told me, oh, that's just the way she goes. Um, she couldn't engage at all. And there were times when she just didn't want to go. So I, there were numerous times when I set her up um, off her and I did, you know, people might be familiar with the T-touch labyrinth. And I set her up to do the labyrinth and we did it and it was so hard for her and she couldn't bend. And then next time she just stopped. Um, and, you know, you can always force a horse to go, absolutely, but I listened um, and she just fully shut down and we stood there for about half an hour um, before she offered to move. And that happened numerous times with different things where it was too much for her system, too much for her brain, and she'd just go, I'm, I'm leaving. Um, and she just switched off and we had it happen on the ground with obstacles. Um, we had it happen when I was on her and one day I sat on her for about 40 minutes. It was getting dark. And I, every time I picked up the reins, she just braced. So I just waited and just kept kind of every now and again doing it. And 40 minutes later, we didn't move. She wouldn't move, um, you know, with a gentle ask. And I learned from Terza Hendricks um, not to not to make them move if like listen to them. So that was a pivotal moment though, because from that moment, uh, our, her ability to be ridden improved and her willingness to go forward improved. I don't think she really stopped again. Um, she hasn't stopped like that for a long time. Um, there are days when she prefers not to be ridden and I have to listen to her. She puts her head on my shoulder and she pushes down. <laughs> and that means, um, oh, do we have to today? Like, so, um, but what she has taught me is A, it's taken a long time to get her to a balanced position. B, she's always gonna have issues. Um, C, all of her, all of these training issues here that I've kind of talked about were physical issues. She has sacroiliac ligament tears. She has um, terrible hips from all the jumping that she's done. She's had a fall, um, which was quite a big fall and I think quite a traumatic falling for her. She could not move her sternum. Like it just didn't move. She has feet issues. She has um, hock issues. She has, I think, fusion in her lumbar. She probably has some kissing spines. So, you know, there's, there's all of these things, but I, believe that I've made her into a pretty happy horse through listening to her and we can now ride and I kind of know our limit in how much we can ride and um, but I also know the exercises that work for her so poles a couple of times a week lateral work um, always keeping her up in her physical balance so and as you'll see here I'm bitless and there's a reason for that she had a negative association with the um, bit, but she has hind end issues. And when we put a bit on a horse with hind end issues, what we have to recognize is that when we put even the slightest pressure on that tongue, um, and I do, we do this exercise in dissections where we show the effect of very, very slight tongue pressure on the ability of the hind limb to move. And there's a connection from the tongue to the uh, hyoid bones 
and the omohyoid muscle goes down uh, through the brachiocephalic under the shoulder into the fascia of the cutaneous uh, trunchi, which is actually a fly twitch muscle, and then all the way back to the stifle. And with a very, very slight amount of tongue pressure, you can see a difference in the ability of the hind leg to move. And so she has all of these issues in her hind end, and she's also had suspensory issues as well as hoof balance issues. And riding her bitless takes away that tongue pressure. And then I ride her bridleless, which is even better for her because um, I'm not sitting her in any position, but I'm helping her lift through her thoracic sling. So I don't do it because I don't like bits. I do it because it's the right thing for her and because it's the right thing for me because I like to use my hands when I have reins in them. So I'm way softer when I have a, um, a, a neck rope than what I am when I have reins. So, and I just wanna show you a couple of images of her. So this was before I got the new short foot pads from Wendy. These are like my old, old, old ones that I'd had forever from, from you originally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this was not last year, but probably the year before. And what you can see here is the big dip behind her wither and how weak her top line is. And her hind end also just drops away. Um, and her, she has a low set neck and she has no kind of flow up through here. Now I am constantly dealing with hoof issues, so it makes it very challenging for me to get her, I've had her x-ray, she's got changes, makes, me, makes it challenging for me to get her neck and sternum as good as I would like. But um, she now has a much fuller back, gluteals, she has quads. It took me a long time to get, to get quads on her. Um, and she, as her neck lifts up and comes out, and most of the time in the paddock, she stands um, square and head up, whereas she used to stand always head, head lowered. Um, and yeah, that was her like go-to position. Um, and I- now, Raquel? Sorry? How old is she now? 15. And so you've had her for three years. So you got her when she was 12, 10 years under saddle with someone else. Yeah. And when I say 10 years under saddle, she did every discipline you can possibly think of. She did eventing, endurance, polo, games, show jumping, dressage. Um, what other ones did she ever go at? Like everything. And she did them like not just jumping pony height, like jumping high for her. So, and she did everything fast. <laughs> so even now the other day I lined her up at working equitation I lined her up with some bending poles and she was, you could see her brain. She was like, right, let's go. And I was like, no, 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 like trot and bend. <laughs> she was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, but I just want to show you this video. I couldn't get it to share in here. So I just have to go um, into my Facebook for a second. It's so interesting that the things we look at when we go to look to buy a horse or to take on a horse and the things we don't look at. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think I believe she was meant to be with me and yeah. I knew that she had arthritis and I knew she had wear and tear, but sometimes you don't have a say in what horses come to you. Absolutely. I totally agree. <laughs> and she's taught me 
more than any other horse. So I just want to show you this little video of her. Sorry if it's a bit blurry. There we go. It's okay. She goes really nice and straight. Have you thought about mounted archery? I'm just starting. <laughs> no, I haven't. So, I got my bow uh, last night. <laughs> yeah, I did see that actually. No, I'd be way too unco. <laughs> um, but you know what I want to show in that video is like she's holding herself in self-carriage. Her head is not down to the ground. Um, she's pretty happy and she's pretty balanced and, you know, that's been a lot of work to get to that point. Um, but, you know, I'm very proud of what I've achieved with her and I think it's possible when we listen to them. So what you said that she puts her head on your shoulder when it's not a good day to be ridden, is that something that she just d started to do? On her own? Um, I think she used to do it before. I have asked her owner if she used to do that and she did. But what I've noticed is it's definitely an evasion. So she definitely does it when she doesn't want to do something or when some, something is physically difficult for her. Um, and I don't, I don't know the reasons all the time why. Like, but often when she does it, I'll give her some treatment um, and just check everything. Uh, and usually she'll have something, but yeah, she will put, push on her shoulder and sometimes she'll just put it there, close her eyes and have a bit of a release, like through her neck and her pole. Um, and I just wait. And then other times, um, yeah, I'll just check everything. And then she, like when she's happy to re-ridden, re I hop on the mounting block, she lines herself up for me. It's so nice that you have such a clear signal from her about how she feels on a daily basis. Um, yeah, and I, and I guess at the start, I was like, oh, this is cute. Like, oh, how cute. She wants to give me cuddles. And then I started to go, well, hang on a second. Like, she's not doing it because she's cute and she's not doing it out of affection. She's doing it for a reason and she's, and she's doing it because she wants to avoid it for some reason. And it's really up to me then to figure out, well, what's the reason that she wants to avoid it on that day? Right. That's that's really so, cool though to have so something as clear as that. I think they all do though. It's just that we have to we have to learn what it is. And if we start to listen to it, they will give us more feedback. And I can tell you there's days where I'm like, come on, I just can we just ride today? Like, you know, and I think it's really easy to have our own agenda, and especially if you're competing, and I get stuck in it all the time of like, okay. We've got to get you stronger, you know. We've got to do this, this, and this. And then she will do that. And then I'll say, okay, all right, I'm not listening. And now she's very open. But before she would not say, like, she would do it. But if I told her, come on, go, she'd be like, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she'd just go. So now she knows I listen. She will not put up with me not listening. And oh. if she's struggling with lateral work, so sometimes because of her hind end issues, the lateral work can be quite hard for her, like um, shoulder in on the ground. She will turn around to bite me. And if I don't listen, she will, she hardly, I don't remember when she's, I think she's connected with me once. But if I don't listen, she will keep telling me like, no, no. 
and then I will treat it and then we'll go again, lateral work's fine. So I guess when you're able to treat them and see the difference, then I, then I can clearly see that she's, it's a physical problem. Right. You know, it's not her just being a narky horse. So um, one, one thing I have clients, I had a client recently and they said, I bought a new horse. And they said, um, oh, the only thing is he's so pushy. And I looked at his body and I said, yeah, well, how can he not be pushy? Like his whole um, body was, he's got a really long body. It's really quite strung out. And his center of balance is on the forehand. So you ask him to stop. And then by the time his body can actually stop, it might be five or 10 steps, you know, until he can find that balance. Um, and even in, I mean, we just did a, a surefoot session with him because he was going to be ridden the next day. And, you know, even in that session, like when you stopped him, he was soft in his hand by the end of that session. So I believe that any horse that's pushy is not in balance. They're not in their vertical balance. So they're not... Um, able to hold themselves, they're, they're leaning, and therefore, and we found this. I oh, probably can't talk about my study, but um, I found this with horses where um, before the treat, before any treatment, uh, they will be pushy, and then by the end of the treatment, or by a number of treatments, depending on their issues, like they're just soft in my hand. Like even the other day, walking patch around the paddock, I'm always checking for that. And um, she was soft in my hand straight away. Like just I had to touch her a little bit and she'd slow down or stop. And that's what we should have before we get on our horses. And that's a matter of their balance. So the question is, why might they be pushy? So it could be that they are really, they've got the brakes on or in, in front and the thoracic sling is not able to lift. And so when you ask them to stop, like they're already kind of rolling forward, if that makes sense. Um, any hind end issues where they're offloading their hind and they're just loading into their front end is going to make them pushy. Um, and the other issue, it could be a training issue. But I always leave this to last. I never say it's a training issue until I've ruled out all the physical reasons that it could be um, difficult for them to stop. And it could be, I have seen some horses where the pressure and release is just inconsistent. So, you know, the, the horses aren't getting clear signals all the time in terms of showing them the correct posture and um, helping them to re-establish those, those patterns, I guess, neurologically. Um, what else do I want to say about that? Um, what, can you just give us a good definition of vertical balance? Yeah. So vertical balance is, and, we, and I've learned this through Terza Hendricks, vertical and horizontal balance. And a lot of you good trainers talk about vertical and horizontal balance. Vertical balance is... Um, uh, hang on, I'll just get a, oh, I don't have a little drawing thing. Vertical balance is, is this balance. So if this is the horse's head and this is the horse's tail. Oh, I have a horse right here. 
Uh, can you unshare your screen so it's a little clearer? Because, uh, yeah. I mean, I hear the word vertical balance all the time, and I get confused because I think it's front, I call it front to back. Yeah, well, pretty much. Like, if you're looking at your vertical balance, so you're looking at a horse that's um, able to hold itself up. So if, I mean, this would be engaged vertical balance, you know, like they've got straight on the vertical that way and they're engaging their hind end. And this would be like on the forehand where the vertical balance is tipping forward. And then when we think about horizontal balance, we think about it's this balance. Okay. And we see a lot of horses with um, horizontal balance where like they're on a circle, but they're, you know, they tilt like that around their circle or they tilt like this, or they have like their head outwards as they go around the circle that way. So they're not in vertical balance because they're not straight on the circle following the line of the circle. And they're not in horizontal balance if they're tipping this way or that way. Got it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I've always used the words front to back and side to side. So I've yeah. had a hard time relating it to vertical and horizontal. <laughs> yeah, so I guess if you think of, um, like your horizontal is that plane. Yep. And so it's how that plane is tipping. And then your vertical is this plane. And it's how that plane is tipping. Got it. Thanks. So if we're in vertical balance, we're straight up and down. Got it. Yeah. If we're in horizontal balance, our if you cut a line straight through the middle of the horse, it would be flat. Um, so the pushy horse, the vertical balance is like this. So then when you ask them to stop, like for a horse to actually stop, they need to be able to kind of sit like this a bit. You know, they need to be able to engage their hind end, lower it a little bit, flex through their lumbosacral joint, lift through their sternum, and then they can come to a nice halt. But if they're already like this and their hind end's kind of out behind them, there's just no, it's just very difficult to stop. Yeah, the momentum just keeps carrying them because yeah. that head's 40 pounds. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, and... And, and they just don't have the balance. Like their legs have to keep moving for them to have balance. They don't have stationary static balance. And I watched a, a webinar with um, uh, the equine documentalist and Dr. Gershman, I think. Oh, recently. okay. Um, and like they were talking about, um, you know, the importance of our posture, the horse's posture in stance and how that, translate to in movement you know so if we've got bad posture and I think I talk about this a bit later but if we've got bad posture in stance so our horse stands one leg forward one leg back or they stand um, with their head lowered or they stand with their head up all the time or um, how else could they stand uh, with the front legs a bit out or under or the hind limbs camped under like how can they then have balance in motion if they don't have balance when they're just standing there? You know, so already you're starting from a compromised position. If you're starting from a stance position, that's not well balanced. Great, thank you. Um,
Okay, got the right screen. So we could almost think of the pushy horse as a horse that's really falling forward all the time. Yeah. And it doesn't, and it doesn't mean like then you've got to figure out why. Right. Yeah. Um, but yes, the center of balance is forward all the time. It's it's more forward than it should be. And then if you want to ride that horse and their center of mass is already forward, let alone in a neutral position, and to ride them, we need it a little bit back then it's a long way between that horse being able to support itself and support you. Yep. So, I mean, it's simply, it is simply that they're on the forehand. And I think a lot of training issues could be avoided if we make sure that horses are not on the forehand before they're ridden. You know, that doing the groundwork and making sure we've got strong backs and good, good postural balance um, before we even think about putting a saddle on them. And I'm even talking about young horses as well, not, you know, any age group of horse. So, so if we were to look at our horses standing in the field, just standing, resting, not grazing or anything, would we want to see them standing square? Mm -hmm. Yep. So when I look out and I look at Patch every day, I observe her every day and I, um, I, if I see her standing where her front legs are square underneath her and, her and she's lifted through her chest and, you know, she's looking soft and her back looks soft and her hind limbs are underneath her body, I'm like, she's great. And then if I see her standing a little bit off or um, what does she tend to do more? Uh she tends to just like, yeah, stand off with her back legs probably more than anything. And when I see that, I'm like, okay, I need to treat her. Like I need to stretch her or treat her or do something to rectify that before. And sometimes it's groundwork. Like it's not always treatment. Sometimes it's groundwork. Um, but before I would ride her, I would need to get her into a better posture. So how the horse stands in the field, how the horse wheezes, how the horse poos, <laughs> um, tells you a lot of information about the freedom of their body. You know, if they always rest a leg when they wee, um, if it looks really hard, if it takes a long time to get into that position or out of that position, if the poo is like challenging, you know, they grunt, then there's probably issues that is making that more difficult um, and, and creating imbalances in them. So there's so many training issues and I just kept like adding and adding and adding to this list. Um, and I think that the important thing is that you have, if you have any of these, I would, I would not go to the trainer first. I would go to the vet or the body worker um, first and I would get see where we're at with them and then I would go to the trainer to then um, help uh, reprogram the issues. But before we do that, we need to be asking why. So, for example, like, uh, Pasha's used to go fast. So why did she go fast? She went fast because she had no balance. She didn't have horizontal or vertical balance um, and she didn't have any... Uh, flexibility or suppleness in her body. So to maintain her balance, it was easier to go fast. Um, and so horses will 
go fast because they don't have balance. Um, if they're bolting, I've, I've seen horses um, have like not always bolting, but I saw a stallion a few years ago. He'd be going around beautifully. And then all of a sudden he would um, tense up and he would go backwards and he would just be absolutely beside himself. And she had many uh, people tell her, you need more whip and spurs and you need to get, you know, get the horse to stop doing this. Um, but she recognised that he wasn't that type of horse. And in the end, um, he was diagnosed with C6, C7 malformation. Ooh. And you could see that I could see that one of his front legs didn't move properly on the circle. And um, that was probably the biggest tell telltale sign for me. And I said, you need to go and get, you need to get the, the, him x-rayed. And the vets investigated every other area until like before they did the neck and eventually they got the right view of the neck. And yeah, he, he was a C6, C7 horse. Now his behavior had to be retrained because he had experienced so much discomfort and pain that it, it was, it, he had a fear about that. Um, and so he actually went away and he just did completely different work for a while. And this is what I did with Patch as well. Like, so he went away and did cattle work and he was dangerous. And, you know, he was at the point where, you know, it was a big question, like, should he be put down or not? No, he went away and he did cattle work for, I think, a few months. And then when he came back, she never asked him to go up to that level again because he was a very high-level performance horse. And he's still plodding around today, happy as anything. But she's very aware of his problems, and so she manages that. Um, but sometimes you've got to change the training program to allow the reprogramming of the physical issues, and I guess this is Surefoot is often used in this as well. Um, and that's why I rode Bitless and um, bridalist because I really wanted to change a program that Patch had and I had that we'd had for years and years and years and years and I couldn't change that writing traditionally because we would both go back into our programming. Um, refusing jumps. I remember one of the first horses I ever treated and he'd been to a clinic on the weekend and he wouldn't jump the jumps and the instructor had got the whip out and he had whip marks on his hind end from being whipped by the instructor with the, with the kid on him to jump the jump. And I just looked at his body and I'm probably convinced now that he was a C6, C7 horse, but they're not, they're not all C6, C7 horses. But I looked at his body and thought, well, no wonder. Like he had, he was, I didn't even know what I know now, but all I know is he was sore, he was uneven um, and he was in pain. So he wasn't, like they don't just refuse Horses don't just come out of bed today and go, oh, I don't feel like jumping today. Like they, they are doing it for a reason. So if they refuse a jump, then you need to ask why. What, why, is, why is that happening and, and get it investigated. Bucking um, and spooking. Uh, I mean, bucking can be from a lot of reasons. Back pain, saddle fit, rider issues, um, but it's the same story. Spooking's an interesting one. You know, I said earlier, Patch used to spook a lot and now it is rare for her to spook, like so rare. And if I have the neck rope on her, it's even rarer because she can see and look at everything. And she didn't know she was allowed to do that. So she'd just be going along and 
trying to look out of the corner of our eye. But spooking, you know, is often an, an imbalance as well. Like they don't feel safe in their own balance. And so they're more likely to be reactive to their external environment. Is it more, more of a reflex in response to a stimulus or is it more a pain, pain um, sort of an avoidance response, I guess is the question. Yeah, I think it could be either or. So I think it could be a pain issue, like say they spook in a certain corner that could be related to pain on that, on that corner perhaps. Um, but it could also be that just their nervous system is not in balance. And so they're more reactive to external stimuli, you know, so they, um, yeah, they're kind of on that, con they're kind of in that constant kind of fight flight place instead of being in that nice parasympathetic relaxed space. So they're kind of on alert for any boogie monsters. Um, so yeah, I think it could be either or. And it's investigating for the individual horse, which one is. Um, rearing, so I treated a horse recently and I hadn't seen him before. And the owner said to me, she fell off. And um, he, he reared and she fell off. And then she's one of my students. So she, she thought about what happened before the event actually happened. And she's like, I, I was asking him to move his shoulder across and he was blocking me and he was looking at something else. And then he, he had nowhere to go. And so he went up and then and proceeded to fall over. So when I looked at that horse straight away, um, I could understand why he had to go up. He had nowhere else to go. So he, I think he's fractured his wither um, and he's, he was like stuck. So if you, his thoracic sling was, shoulder blades were stuck between his, on his wither. His wither was restricted, couldn't move his sternum. So if you think about like, if you push your sternum out and, um, and kind of hold your shoulders up and then try to like move your shoulder over, it's like impossible. Mm. Okay, so where, the, where do you go from there? Like you, you've got to get out of it. You can't go forward because you're actually blocked and going forward. So you're going to go up. It's the only place that, that he could go. He either had to go up or figure or she had to let go of the reins and let him go forward. So he had somewhere else to go. So, and he had hind end issues as well. So I could understand straight away why his response was to rear and that could easily be put down to behavior. He'd only been ridden six times. He's a green horse. He hasn't done much. Um, easily, easily just be like, well, he just needs more work. Um, but she's very um, mindful and she knew she wanted to get his body checked before going any further. Um, leaning on the bit. So the horse I was talking about before, the pushy horse, um, they had, a, I don't even remember what type of bit it was, like just a, oh, it was just a standard three-piece snaffle of some description in his mouth, but it was quite thick. And they said he, he couldn't collect is what they said. So obviously I could see from his body why that was a problem as well, but I looked in his mouth and his tongue filled all his space in his mouth and he had a low soft palate. And for a big, big like horse, he had no space for a bit in his mouth. So they changed the bit into a smaller um, bit 
and they said the difference was remarkable. Um, you know, he could all of a sudden start to come a bit round and, and now he'd been ridden in that bit for, like they bought him with the bit. <laughs> so he'd been ridden in that bit for a long time. Um, and so sometimes they're leaning on the bit due to actual bit discomfort. Um, and other times, you know, it's because they, again, don't have that vertical balance. And the same with reluctance to work on the bit. Um, I was having a discussion with my students yesterday and I was talking about head and neck position and how we often think about putting the head and neck into a position and then like the body should follow. That's traditionally how I, I think it's been done. That's how I used to ride anyway. Like get the head into a position and then, you know, use your legs and engage the hind end. But to me, the head position is a, um, it's like a, what's a metronome or no, what's a better description? It's like a, um, uh, it's like where the head and neck position is shows you what it, what's going on in the body. So if the horse naturally goes around for, on a free long rein with their head down, head and neck down, then you've probably got issues with the hind end um, going on. If the horse goes around with the head and neck up, uh, again, it could be hind end or wither or back or you know, some other issue, but the head to me is a mirror of what's going on in the body rather than- low, That's different from like a long and low position. It's like a drop down between the withers low. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. When we talk about long and low, like I, I wrote an article about it actually a few years ago. Um, I think a lot of times horses are doing long and low incorrectly. Okay. Um, and they're on the forehand. So they're long and low and they look kind of soft, but they're not, they're not actually stretching over their back and engaging their hind end. Um, and so if a horse just drops to that position themselves, um, you need to look at where the sternum is, where, like where that vertical balance is, because what should happen is the vertical balance should stay here and then it just stretches and elongates and then the hind limb come under more and then and the head comes up and out and down. Whereas a lot of times it's they tip, they tip forward, head comes down, body tips forward. So if they just go into that position, then they're probably on the forehand. Because what you want is a horse on a long lead to maintain a neutral position comfortably. I, even with the hip joint, um, lifting through the sternum, stretching with the, with the nose, coming under with a, with a hind end, um, and maintaining that vertical balance. Um, and if they do that on the free, you know, on just a long line, then you know they've got good balance. So lunging them, or I don't really like calling it lunging, but long waning with one long rein and having a look at where they naturally go themselves can give you a lot of information about their balance and where that head and neck position is. You know, it's, I guess the head and neck is maintaining their balance. So wherever it goes, that's where their balance is going. So you want it to naturally go into a nice balanced position, not that, not that we should have to put it into that position. 
Um, so the other aspect of that is an unsteady head carriage and Patch had that. So she would, I would ask her to come up and then she would have to go down and then sometimes it would come up and down depending on um, where she was going. And often you will find that when, um, you know, the hind end is not comfortable. So they um, just won't be able to hold their own position. And even now, you know, Patch, if it's too long a period of time and she gets tired, she will default down. Um, whereas some horses might default up, it depends. Um, tilting their head. So you can see in this image here um, that he is tilting his head um, and I look like I'm trying to straighten it a little bit. Um, but that's, you know, a sign of, of restrictions um, and potentially pain or restrictions. Opening mouth. So uh, often when we see an open mouth, we just put a nose band on it. And I think that more and more people are realising that that's not okay. Um, and it's not the answer. When I see an open mouth, I'm asking, okay, what, why? Why is the horse opening its mouth? So is it opening its mouth because of the big comfort? Is it opening its mouth because of the rider's hand? Is it opening its mouth because it, it's actually can't, it's not in balance in that position or that um, it's in a fake head carriage and um, it's trying to release the tension. So an open mouth um, is an issue. And what I wanna see is a lovely, quiet, soft mouth. And like when Patch is going really balanced, it's her, sometimes her teeth actually like bop around a bit when it's really soft and cause she doesn't have the bit in her mouth. Um, you'll hear it like, <laughs> kind of moving a bit um, and I don't like them to be excessively licking and chewing but they should be able to lick and chew um, dropping the shoulder so they'll drop the shoulder for lots of reasons and sometimes it's a rider balance issue but again before we get on them we need to check that we have shoulder mobility um, and then they can easily move those shoulders side to side, like the horse I'm treating at the moment who has torn his superficial pectoral or um, descending pectoral muscle uh, a year ago. And, you know, we've just started treating him and the owner said, yeah, like I'm still having trouble to pick that shoulder up. So we've been to make sure it's comfortable first and then retrain his body of how to pick that shoulder up again. And Raquel, all of these things can happen on occasion. Yeah. The horse might startle. He might gape his mouth if something's more difficult or he's lost. But it's the seeing those things consistently that are, I think is the point here that in terms of a training issue. Because I, I can already hear some people saying, my horse did that once. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and I mean, if it did it once, then you'd just monitor to see whether it was a one-off or not. Um, if they've never ever done it before and then they started doing it, then hopefully you can pick it up sooner than going, oh, he's been doing this for months or years. Right, thanks. So yeah, definitely. Um, so jumping issues, I've talked about refusing jumps, but I also wanna point out um, straightness over a jump and whether that's a training issue or a, 
or a physical issue. So I know this horse very well. Um, and what you can see here is that she's square in front. She's reasonably even in front. Um, she's pushed off fairly evenly from behind, but the left hind is a little higher than the right. Um, and there's a bit of tension through her pelvis here, but she's extending pretty well through her lumbosacral joint, her hind end. That looks like it's pushed off pretty strongly. She's got good lift. She's got, she's um, lengthening over her back and uh, the, the, the rider is just holding her a little bit. So if you let that out, she would probably extend that forward more. Um, and then if you look at the front one here, her front legs are square. Now she does tend to hold them a little wide um, but I know she's had a big pectoral tear. Wow. So she's, uh, her, um, deep pectorals, one of them just hangs down a bit, uh, a lot. And so, and I also know she's had a fractured pelvis. Wow. Um, and she has a bad hoof on that left hind hoof from an in, a separate injury. So for her to be jumping in this position is is great she's five you know we want her to be in this in this way and if she starts to jump crooked so even with that left hind like we might not get that 100 percent, but i watch her all the time at her events to, to check like how's she jumping what's her hind end doing is she short um and and you know now they've changed her shoe and and that seems to have made a huge difference on that foot given her more support um so that hopefully we can not lead to any training issues down the track when she starts to get any discomfort in her pelvis and maybe starts to knock a rail or um, or at worst refuse because we haven't managed this problem. So we're trying to prevent any of those from happening. And she looks like she really enjoys this job. Oh, she's a happy horse. She's a super happy horse. Yeah. yeah. The only time she's not happy is when I go to their place and I don't treat her <laughs> and she's standing there like looking at me like, Hi. and I'm like, sorry, not today. <laughs> so yeah, she's super happy horse. Very happy. Okay. So a few more kind of training issues, which I think people easily mistake for training issues, but often are a physical issue. So um, I've had a few comments about Patch when I've had her at working equitation. I'm like, your horse has a lovely rhythm. And, and I think, oh, like, that's such a compliment because she did not have any rhythm before. Like, it was, like, faster, slower, you know, the, the rhythm was changing every few strides. And now she maintains the same rhythm in her work um, and... Uh, I think that's really important asking, can your horse maintain a rhythm? Um, and you shouldn't have to work to maintain that rhythm. Like it should be easy for you as a rider. The other thing is rhythm in lateral work. So Patch definitely struggles with her rhythm in lateral work. Um, it's not a smooth, it's not a smooth, easy action. Um, sometimes it is, but it just depends where she's at. And so you want to see that kind of flow, you know, that it's, it's balanced. So if they're struggling with their rhythm in lateral work, then there could be an underlying reason for that. And Sue Dyson talks about that as well. So Sue Dyson's written 
lots of papers on um, pain and performance and um, you know she recognizes low-grade lamenesses that most vets don't can't recognize um, and has shown the you know abolishment of behavioral issues through blocking the area that's causing the pain um, and this horse here is an example of that so you can see on the left the horse is not engaging its hind end it's pushing with and this is something we always look at see where the push is it's behind the horse and we want the put the main push to be under the horse um, these legs are not extending forward heads in the air no flexion through the lumbosacral joint um, no lift through the core uh, sternum is pushing kind of forward and general balance is forward in this direction um, and then they blocked the uh, a nerve in the hind end the uh, I think the plantar nerve and you can see this is straight after being blocked the horse is lifting through the sternum extending through the limbs engaging the hind end this push-off is going to be much more under the body now rather than out the back uh, flexing through the lumbosacral joint and starting to engage through the abdominal lift through the back um, so you know this is yeah, th this is what happens with abolishment of, of pain. So you can see that it's it was a pain issue, not a behavioural issue, not a training issue. You know, even though you could say, oh, the rider just needs to like do this with their hands and sit back a bit and, you know, <laughs> squeeze with their legs a bit more to get it round. But in this one, I'm sure she's working the same amount and... Or less. Or less, a lot, a lot less probably. So canter issues are a big one, uh, disuniting in the canter or having trouble maintaining the canter is always a pain problem. Um, and difficulty with flying changes, flying changes will show up a lot of, um, a lot of different problems. Um, croup high, so I had a horse that I treated years ago, uh, he was always croup high and he always had a low grade hind limb lameness. Um, and I suspect potentially underlying neck issues. Um, and we knew when he needed a treatment because his croup would come up higher mm. and his canter would be like, like this instead of, you know, like a, yep. like, like a wave. Um, and so that would always be a time when we knew, okay, we need to, we need to treat him. Um, difficulty with small circles. So Patch has trouble with small circles. She can now maintain them on the, long lead pretty well she can do a couple or oh, quite a few really nice engaged circles now um so when you say small yeah i'm talking like 10 meters or less okay um because that it reminds me of a study that dr clayton did i believe it was dr clayton that when you put a horse on a on a on a circle I think it was less than 10 meters that they actually show signs of lameness because they physically can't uh, stay in vertical balance on, on a smaller circle than that. They have, we either have to position them in a different way for a volte or make the circle bigger. Is that right? Do I have that right? Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think small circles are really, really difficult for the horse. And I think we do them too much and too early. And when I say 
So when I'm looking at patch on a small circle, what I want to see is her rhythm doesn't change. Her um, bend is with the circle. Her hind limbs are following her front end. So we're still on two tracks. So we have horizontal balance and we have vertical balance. As soon as that drops, then the circle is too hard. Okay. So, you know, there have been other schools of thought, like I know Kerry Ridgeway and um, uh, who's the guy he trained with? Um, uh, yeah, I know who you mean. Um, uh, he wrote Straightening the Crooked Horse. Yes. <laughs> so they train a lot on small 12-metre circles um, with a cavison, though, and I think that's important. It's with a cavison because what you're looking for is if you can get straightness on a circle and you can get rhythm and balance on a circle, you've got it. Like you've probably got rhythm and balance, but that small circle will show you if you have it or you don't. Does that make sense? So, and I think it's recognizing A, that small circles are hard, um, B, the issues that you mentioned uh, and using them as a gauge, but not overdoing them you know, using them to get the horse more, to check their rhythm, to get to see how they're bending, to get them using their body a bit and then come out right. rather than small circle, small circle, small circle. Because oh, they, right. yeah, they're just going to get tired. They're going to lose their balance, lose their rhythm, and then you're going to set them up for injury. Well, and, and so that brings me to the question of uh, horses working in round pens where they're not, they're, the, the person is not in control of the vertical balance and the yep. horizontal balance. Yep. Um, so by allowing the horse to be out of vertical and horizontal balance, are you not then putting a lot of stress, especially if the footing is deep? On those yeah, cars? absolutely. Absolutely. Like, um, yeah, I, I think you put it, I think I was just going to say that actually, like depending on your surface, so if I asked Patch to do a small circle on the sand surface, I'm lucky to get one or two because of all of her soft tissue problems. But at home, I have a, a firm surface, so I can ask her to do a lot more on that firm surface for her body. Not every horse is going to be the same. But a soft surface will add a lot more uh, instability as the foot comes in contact with the ground, so therefore you get a lot more potential for twist um, and so therefore, if even with balance, you've got more potential for twist and stuff. So if you don't have balance and they're in a soft, heavy surface, uh, you're putting a hell of a lot of strain through the tendons and ligaments uh, of, of the body um, and, and setting them up for failure. So, uh, you know, I don't, I know people use that free round pen. I've done it you know kind of work but i don't like it for their body okay yeah because uh, a lot of times people use it for young horses who are not fit who are not in condition who are not in balance and i'm just concerned that they're setting them up for injuries absolutely and also they're setting them up to have to work them for longer because they're going to start to struggle so they're going to start to speed up and they're going to start to potentially misbehave because they're tired and then uh, all of a sudden they're then working them longer to deal with a behavior issue that is really probably a fatigue and balance issue. So I don't, I wouldn't recommend that, that sort of training for a young horse. Like I spent hours next to patch 
helping her every step of the way to get her balance, like hours and hours and hours before I could put her on a long lead. Like, because otherwise, as soon as she went on the long lead, she'd lose her balance. So I was trotting beside her, you know, I was like helping her every step of the way without trying to get in the way because I was learning at the same time. But, you know, I think that close work and teaching them balance and then gradually putting them out and maintaining that balance and not for long periods so you don't lose it again because then you have to deal with that. Yeah. No, I I totally agree with you that I I find it fascinating that we think that I don't know if it comes from the idea that the horse should just naturally be balanced, but they're balanced for being a horse in a pasture, not a horse that's balanced for being ridden, which I always talk about a weight bearing fitness and weight bearing balance, which is a completely different animal than a pasture balance. Yeah. And, you know, because nowadays we don't have the movement that, you know, horses had in terms of the way that we keep them. Like, I mean, looked at the Coney courses in Holland and um, they were conditioned to be ridden. (laughs) I mean, they're not ridden, they're in the pasture. But if you looked at their body, they were conditioned to be ridden because they had a beautiful top line. They were engaging their core. (laughs) They had freedom through their whole body uh, because they move all the time and they browse. And I don't know if you can get Sharon back to do a talk on variable feeding positions. Maybe that's what I'll ask her for it. <laughs> yeah. Because um, those horses, I, we dissected some of those horses and they had the most well-developed psoas muscles, um, which is under their spine. They had the most well-developed abdominal muscles. They, they were just amazing. And, and okay, they're a different breed, but they browse all the time. And I have videos of them walking uh, grazing with different front one front leg forward other front leg forward grazing square and their whole body is is engaged in that motion if that makes sense like while their mouth is eating you can see that it it the energy is rippling through their whole body and we don't see that in our domestic horses that much anymore because right. um they don't not in they're not in balance uh so yeah they showed me what balance is <laughs> And and what a strong back is. Yeah. Um, Okay, rough transitions. So um, transitions are a really good, they're really good exercise. They're really great for engaging the hind end and the core. But if they're rough and they're not smooth and they're having difficulty with them, then they're not creating any benefit at all. And um, what I've learned over time is how long it takes a horse to do a transition in a smooth and balanced way. So we often say, okay, horse, stop now. And then we expect them to stop within one stride, maybe two, like to come into their halt. And then you'll see horses where they kind of bounce, the hind end kind of bounces into the transition um, or they bounce up as they come up, you know, into the transition. And what we want is that they, they have time to make sure their balance is back and then they just come down and it's smooth and it looks effortless. Um, so a rough transition is often a sign of um, weakness or can sometimes be lumbosacral issues, pelvic sacroiliac issues, suspensory issues, like anything that's going to prevent them from being able to engage their hindquarter into a transition. 
So, um, and Patch used to have terrible transitions. They were either quick or they were just like, Whoa. so um, I had to give her 10 strides to do a transition instead of two or three. Um, hopping into the trot or the canter. So you'll see some horses do a little like jump before they go into the canter. Uh, and that's generally, a, a, there's a lameness, there's a, there's a lameness issue there. Um, sometimes it's a thoracic sling issue, like under the scap scapula, um, or it could be a lower limb that's restricted the upper, upper limb. Um, difficulty turning in one direction. So um, I think you've had a lot of talks on fascia. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and my fascial lines and understanding, no, you're not going to restart now. <laughs> Please not. Okay, it says I've got two hours, so that's okay. Oh, good. Okay. Um, but it won't go away. There we go. Uh, so, you know, with any restrictions in the fascia, which could be pain-related or it could just be restrictions, um, you're going to influence the way that horse can or can't move. And difficulty turning in one direction could be that they're avoiding putting the weight through a certain limb, um, or it could be, you know, that they've got a fascial restriction that's stopping them from being able to turn in that direction. Um, and generally poor performance. So I guess all of these issues are poor performance. And um, it's just some aren't considered poor performance. They're considered training problems. And, um, I, you know, training can often help, especially if you listen to the horse, but also recognising why they're doing what they're doing. So someone's asked if rooting is indicative of discomfort rider issues or horses balance if what rooting where they root with their nose like they uh rooting uh like i think you call it pig rooting um oh, like where they do little bucks no where they dive with their nose like they 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 try to root the bit out of your hand pull the bit out of your hand oh, okay. right yeah. like racing yeah yeah what do you um, guys yeah, I don't know. Reefing the bit? I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would. So, what did they ask? Is it a training issue or a uh, discomfort rider issue or horse balance issue? Or well, not? it could be either. Either <laughs> or. Like, any of those, right? It's a, it's a matter of ruling that out for your particular horse. So, like, the first thing you'd look at is potentially the bit and bit comfort. Um, and I think bit fitting. Um, needs to be discussed a lot more in the Netherlands. Bit fitting is a thing, <laughs> like it's it's a thing that's done regularly over here. Um, we have very few qualified bit fitters. It's increasing, but you know you want to look at the bit. You'd want to look at the rider and their hands, and you'd want to look at when they're doing it. You know, so is it all the time? Is it a certain movement? Um, is it at the end of the work as opposed to at the start? Um, so are they fatiguing? Um, it could even be a saddle fit issue, you know, after a while if the saddle is pressing on the points and they're trying to get away from that, it could be that. So it's always is a, a process of elimination, but it's being aware that um, it's not just one thing. So just because you rule out the bit or the rider, it doesn't mean that's it. And that sometimes you might change one of the things and then it improves for a period of time and then it comes back because the underlying issue could still be there. So 
yeah, I think that kind of answer. It's not, not none of this is going to be a straightforward, right. oh, if your horse does this, it's this. And, and um, that kind of thing can become a habit, even if there isn't any pain left. I, the, my case in point is with the pony clubbers, when they would stop, they would hang onto the reins instead of just give the horse the reins. And so the horses learn to start rooting and pulling the reins out yeah. of their hands. But and they learn to do it for food as well. You know, they learn it with kids that, well, if I do it and I get the reins out of their hands, I can go and eat. So yes. in that situation, it's a learned behavior. Right. But um, you have to rule out any pain factor before you make that decision. Yeah, and you'd also want to ask, well, like, well, is it just a typical pony who does just want to eat or are they doing the eating thing because they're avoiding something? Right. Um, you know, like uh, Patch, what, I, what I've noticed and is that Patch was a typical pony, right? So we'd walk past some grass and she'd straight away reach for that grass. And, you know, I'd be riding her along and she'd be reaching for grass. And I thought when I put the neck rope on her and I rode her with only that, how the hell am I going to stop her from eating grass? So I thought I'd have a real problem. But the interesting thing is I don't. She doesn't try to reach for the grass anymore. She will, if she sees a milk thistle, she will make a beeline for that. That's her favourite. I, I taught her about those. But, um, like, I don't have a problem with her trying to grab grass. So how much of it was an avoidance? Right. Uh, yeah. How much of it was her trying to say, like, get off my head? <laughs> like... It's so interesting how much of horse behavior we've been taught to write off simply as behavior. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think that that's a generational thing. I can certainly remember that as a kid that, you know, these things were considered just, you know, the horse was being nappy or he was just being difficult. Yeah. yeah. But we're finally starting to recognize that horses, if they're doing something, we have to ask the question why. why? Yeah, that's the biggest, biggest question that we have to ask why. And then we have to keep investigating until we're like 100% sure that there is no why. Um, and, but sometimes I've had people say, well, I've had, I've had this investigated by 10 people and no one can find the answer. And, um, and then we look over the horse and there's lots of reasons potential reasons why. Um, so just because someone says no, doesn't don't stop looking because obviously none of us have a full like knowledge of everything. And um, I've come across that so many times and then I'm like, well, it has this, this and this. So why can't this be the causes? Right. Um, so I think I, I'll talk about it here now, cold back horse. So I um, had a client's horse and she, he was young. And uh, the whole time that since he'd been broken in, he'd been cold backed. So it's easy to then say, well, that's just him. You know, like he's, he's done that always since he was ridden. He's always been cold backed. I just have to get on him and do this and that and then he's fine. But she, she was asking questions, you know, so she took him and she got some acupuncture and that helped and then, but it came back. And um, so then, and no one bothered to look at the saddle. <laughs> so when I started treating him, he had a lot of issues. He actually didn't engage with me much at all. Um, he looked 
his hind end just was looked shit difficult. Um, and he had a gelding scar. Um, he couldn't move his sternum. He was sore in his back, especially at the base of his wither. Um, I think they were like the main things. And yeah, he's just, his behavior was like, didn't engage. By the third treatment, he was like, hey, like <laughs> sniffing and kissing. And, and she's like, like, she's like, just for the change in his behavior, I'm happy, you know, let alone everything else, because he became like interested in his environment and he became engaged with her and engaged with me. And, uh, and you know, now I saw a photo of him the other day being ridden around and he's so happy, like he looks so happy. And we realised the saddle was an issue. She got him a new saddle. Um, and, you know, now we're just treating him as a maintenance. He doesn't have a cold back anymore. So um, just because your horse has always done it does not mean that it's okay. It just means we haven't found the answer as to why they do it. Right. And he did not need any retraining. So when she hopped on him and he felt better, she didn't need to retrain him not to be cold backed. He just wasn't cold backed anymore. Nice. Because he had no pain. So lots of people say um, it's a habit, but then I've seen so many habits just disappear, like in a treatment, if you treat them and then show them a new way of moving. So I always kind of show the horse, like this is where you have to be in there, allow their central pattern generators and, you know, their neurological system to, figure out a new way. So we do have to reprogram, but sometimes reprogramming once in the right moment, the horse is like, oh, okay, that's better, more balanced. I can do it. It is amazing how quickly some horses repattern, isn't it? It's just, yep. whereas people, as a riding instructor, I can tell you that it takes a lot longer to repattern people. Absolutely. If you're doing it from just that perspective, yeah, a lot, a lot, lot longer, like months and months and months. But if you can, yeah, repattern in the right time with a physical reprogramming, then it's, it's so much quicker. Yeah. Um, girthiness. So I just want to talk a little bit about that. So biting while being girthed up or general girthy behavior. Now this horse here has been cross-tied, so it can't bite. Um, but you just look at its face, its nostrils are flared, its ears are back, its eyes are tight. Um, and, you know, she's at the girth there. So it's showing obvious girthiness. Now, I've read a few articles about retraining the girthy horse, and I have a problem with that. Um, I believe nine times out of ten that they're girthy because it's painful. And, yes, sometimes you've got to retrain, reprogram to realise that it's not going to be painful. But... And Patch is girthy. And sometimes I get cranky, you know, because she's girthy. I'm like, oh, just don't be stupid. But then she has bad feet and she has pectoral damage. And she has one, I think she probably has something wrong with her rib on her right side because it always, always gets restricted. Um, but then she has a bad left foot, so it could be from that. Uh, but when, when she's in balance, her girthiness D Increases. When the saddle and everything fits, her girthiness decreases. So um, if they're yeah, doing those behaviours, you need to rule out every possibility of why they're girthy. You need to rule out girth discomfort, saddle discomfort, pectoral damage, um, wither damage. So any wither restrictions can cause girthiness. 
um, thoracic sling issues, uh, kissing spine at the base of the wither. You need to rule out all of those issues before you say it's a behavioural issue. Can ulcers cause girthiness? And ulcers, absolutely. Because I think that that actually is probably more common than we think. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So, and pectoral tears are way more common than we think too. Mm. Girth, like trauma um, from slipping or from girth trauma um, in, in that area. So, um, you know, I think... I, yeah, I think you've got to be very careful at retraining that behaviour that you're not masking a pain behaviour because I think you can retrain a horse to cover up a physical issue. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen that. I've dealt with horses where they're highly trained to do all this amazing stuff and they're doing it, but they're not doing it correctly because they can't. So they do it quick and they make sure they do everything the owner asks them like straight away. But if you asked them to do it properly, they could take one step, not 10. Um, so they're still doing it. They're, they're still trained, but they're just not doing it in their best biomechanical function. Um, kicking or moving around while tacking up and moving around when getting on. I treated a horse a few months ago that he said, oh, like, she's pretty good. The only thing she does is um, when I go to get on, she moves around a lot. And I said, oh, okay. And I looked at her and she had a lot of problems, a lot of issues. There was no straightness. There was a lot of restrictions. Um, and so I treated her. And then I saw him a few weeks later and he said, oh, she doesn't move now when I get on. So nothing else changed, just, just the tr treating her and, and taking her brakes off and getting her pelvis moving and all that, she, she stopped moving. So that could easily be put down as a training issue. I see that, you know, horses are trained to stand still when you get on them. We're training out a communication line. <laughs> you know, like I said before, Patch will line up in the mounting block. She will side herself over for me to get on when she's comfortable. And when she's not, she will push her head around and try to get it on my shoulder. You know, so we, we train horses so much that I think we sometimes train out that line of communication that's really valuable. And I don't think people appreciate just how difficult it is for a horse to stand quietly while you get on. Yeah. Like, you know, so when I get on patch, like she's little, right? Yeah. I like stand up on a big, tall mounting block and I literally lower myself on top of her. So there's no pull on the saddle. There's no... Like in the thing, I am so careful with the way I lower myself onto her because she is little. Um, and I, I don't think we'd think about that. <laughs> well, some people do, but I think a lot of people yeah. don't. Yeah. So we need to always be using a mounting block when we get on and thinking about um, how, how we get on and also what the horse is communicating to us when we get on. Um. We talked about spooking. Tail swishing is a big one. So if you see a horse going around a dressage test and their tail's swishing or twisting or, you know, it should just flow nice and balanced with the motion uh, all the way through and that should flow through the whole spine in an ideal world. But, yeah, if there's swishing, sometimes, you know, it's just the rider gave an aid that they didn't like. But sometimes I think the reaction to the rider's aid is because they're struggling to do what they're asking. And so they're saying, I, I can't, I can't do it. Like, 
you know, you need extra spur because I can't physically do it. Um, so tail swishing is a, is a big one. Fascial restriction. So this horse you'll notice naturally has just got the head up um, and the hind limbs out behind, the forelimbs a bit underneath. So that dorsal line is really tight. Uh, as well as probably other lines. But when a horse's dorsal line is tight and they're stuck in that position, they will be spooky. They will struggle to turn. They will uh, obviously struggle to relax and lower their head. And I've treated a couple of ponies where they were super reactive. And, um, you know, and I did have to do some reprogramming for their body to show. So I treated them, got them into a better posture, and then I showed the horse how to move better and then the owner then followed that those patterns on and then it was a cart pony so it got put back in the cart and I you know I saw the horse twice that was it um and it, it was became relaxed it stopped spooking it stopped um it was able to turn freely it was I can't even remember the problems but a lot of it was its spookiness Posture like this horse clearly this is a posture that it would have standing out in the field yeah so yeah like this is not being held like this yeah right. so my point being that you know if we pay attention to our horses in the field and we see that they're like this we should think oh we need to do something but also if they're reprogramming we should be able to look in the field and see ah it's standing and it, it's grazing differently it's standing yeah. it's resting differently yeah absolutely because this is not a horse that you want to then get on and ride until you've got it relaxed and it's able to stand with it. So the eye should be more in line with the hip. So it should be more in a neutral position down here, not constantly standing like this with the pole really, really high and the eyes like above the pelvis. So, and the mouth is really tight. The eyes really tight. The ears are back. So there's obvious discomfort in this horse. And she was a very spooky horse. I didn't know what I know now, but I, she was a very spooky horse. Uh, people are asking, what kind of treatments are you doing? Oh, uh, I do a mixture of stuff, like, because I have lots of tools, like osteopathy. You have a lot of letters after your name. <laughs> and I've done lots of short courses, like I've got some craniosacral, some fascial treatments, some chiro, osteo, pads, taping, all, all sorts of stuff. I've I think it really depends what you have access to and it just depends on your practitioner and what they have access to um, because I kind of mix my treatments depending on, I follow the horse's body. So I treat depending on each, I don't treat any horse the same. Um, so, you know, it can be things like muscle release therapy. It could be craniosacral therapy. It could be short foot pads. It could be um, osteo. I don't think, straight chiro is an answer in these types of horses they need some sort of fascial release um so acupuncture you know i think it's it's more about the practitioner who's using the modalities than potentially the modalities themselves so would it be fair to say that if you if you see a number of these quote-unquote behaviors then it would probably be best to have a professional, a good professional look at your horse to at least assess and get going on the right track. But then there's a lot of things people can do themselves, like T-touch, yeah. like mask, yeah. like sure yeah. Stretching. Yep. Yeah. Like learn, learn 
learn stuff you can do yourself because if I didn't have that with Patch and I had to rely on a body worker all the time, like my progress would have been very different uh, because I couldn't just get on top of things then. So learn something yourself, even if it's just stretching, that can make a massive difference. Just spinal stretching can make a huge difference to a horse um, if you do it consistently. Um, and we had that talk on stretching that we did. Like right, ages right, which is a great resource for people to watch. Um, yeah. There's another question, but I think it's beyond the scope of, of a webinar. It's how do you teach a horse to balance himself both vertically and horizontally when you're riding them? And I, I think that's- yeah. <laughs> it's a big question. I mean, Terza uh, Hendricks or Dillian Kreinberg or, you know, those people are probably the best for that. But I would say get the balance on the ground. You need the horizontal and vertical balance on the ground before you ride them. That's the biggest key. You can't get it. You can't get it from riding them is my belief. I'm sure a very skilled trainer like Manolo Mendez and Terza, like they can, but I also know they do a lot of groundwork before they ride them. Like they don't just go and jump on and change the horse by riding. Um, so what kind of things could cause physical imbalance? So um, asymmetry. So most of our horses are asymmetrical um, in some degree. And so really what we want to promote, especially for young horses, is getting them as symmetrical as possible before we ride them. Um, and that comes down to hoof balance and the types of exercises you do in your training. Um, brace. So I think often brace comes from pain. Patch used to just brace a lot. Like the trot was a brace, you know, and then I got the trot relaxed and the canter was a brace, you know, and she'll still revert back to that brace um, depending on the conditions or if she gets tired or if I'm not balanced enough, then she will brace because um, she still has those physical imbalances in her that, you know, make her need to brace sometimes. Um, we talked about fascial restrictions um, and they can have a huge impact on the horse's ability to move laterally, uh, move limbs, uh, engage the core, soften through the back. Fascial restrictions are huge. Um, the pole, I put the pole in there because a lot of horses will show behavioural problems if they've got pole pain. Yeah. So those horses will generally be more spooky. They will be more reactive. They will pull back more. Um, they will have difficulty lengthening, like lifting through the sternum and lengthening through the nose and going beyond the vertical. They're often stuck in a position. They um, will have trouble lifting through their back and um, pulling back, like I've seen horses that pull back once that's caused permanent damage throughout the whole body, including the hamstrings and the pelvis and the neck. Um, and, you know, so my biggest thing is teach your horse to pressure release and don't let them pull back ever <laughs> as much as you can. Or if they're going to pull back, make sure the string is going to break or the rope is going to give or something because I've seen so much damage from horses pulling back. Um, and around the pole, we have, uh, it's very close to the dura, which is like the spinal canal. Um, it's, we have a lot of nerves coming out around the pole in the TMJ area. We have um, the myodural bridge between the brain and the spinal cord that gets restricted. Like that area is so important for, for body function, but it also, you know, will sometimes show up other body function if they're not 
if they're holding their head crooked due to a problem somewhere else. So um, pole is super important. Any back pain, obviously, will create an imbalance. Sacroiliac issues, canter issues, really big with sacroiliac issues. Um, muscle tears, I think muscle tears are underestimated massively. Mm. Um, this horse here is in a dissection. It's a scar. Um, this muscle, and I've only, I've, I haven't spoken, I don't know if I asked Sharon actually if she's ever seen this before. She wasn't at this dissection, but um, in the omohyoid muscle, down at the base of his neck, he had this tear. So, and this horse was always anxious. He was always running around the paddock. He was always a bit of an idiot in the paddock. And that's why she decided to put him down because he was unsound and, and he ran around and didn't help himself. So he had a tear in his omohyoid. What happened to him, and I don't know if, when this tear happened, but he got a foot through a bar and just banged it. At the time, no radiographic changes, no obvious injury. Um, but later on, the, there became uh, a lot of changes in his joint, and it was on the same side that he got his foot caught. So he potentially did that at that time and tore in there. You know, like this is never going to be um, normal muscle tissue again. You can definitely improve the mobility of that scar, but it's always going to be probably compromised unless you treat it early enough. Um, and it's a really important area. Like Omaha, it's super important for that horse. Um, muscle tears, common areas, pectorals, hamstrings, um, and front of shoulder are probably really common areas for muscle tears. Really commonly, really underdiagnosed and underrecognized as potential reasons for physical imbalance. Um, don't always cause lameness unless it's acute. And scars cause a lot of pain. So I've treated horses that have had scars for years and then we've treated them. And I could do a whole talk on scars. I'm doing a whole talk on that at Equitana. But um, the scars are painful. They get a higher amount of nerve fibres. They cause restrictions. Um, and you can still work with them even years and years later to relieve the pain from those scars and allow that function to come back. And I can attest um, to that because my scar was from 1984 and uh, 30 years later, I had someone work on who was really good and the changes in my mobility were amazing. Yeah, so 30, 34 years later. So you, you can always change a scar and improve mobility. You might not get full structure back in that tissue, but you can definitely get like function back from releasing, making sure that scar tissue can move. I would love you to do that talk because from my personal experience, I couldn't understand why I was limited. If I tried to do some particular yoga stretches, I'd wind up just about ripping my SI joint, but it was because the scar couldn't move. And when I got the scar yeah. work done, the change in mobility was shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Scars are just, yeah. Phenomenal. I mean, we, yeah, like I, yeah, that's why I'm talking on it at Equitano. So I'm happy to. That's awesome. We went on that. Yeah. Um, and then we've talked about girthiness. So the other things are your low-grade lamenesses, which are often not even diagnosed by your vets because they're such low-grade that you can't really even pick them up. And sometimes it's low-grade in two or three or four limbs. Um, so that makes it even more challenging. Um, previous training. So, yes, there definitely you can get issues due to previous training. Um, and setting up certain patterns. And as I said, I ride 
a lot riderless because of my horse's previous training and my previous training. So I want to break that pattern and that's why I choose to do that. Breaking in, oh, I could talk forever on breaking in. Fit your saddle and don't look at the break, don't even call it a breaking in process. Like it's a really important process for the horse's body and their balance. And it should be like a balancing process or something like a balancing in or something. Because if you get that horse in balance at that place, you will have an amazing riding horse forever. Like I remember Kerry talking about that he didn't sit on his horses till they were six, but he'd done lots and lots of groundwork with them. And they were already in balance. He's like, when you sit on them, it's not a big deal. They don't react. They don't buck. They don't rear. They don't take off. They don't do anything because they're in balance. And if you're working with a horse that's in balance, the saddling issue, it's, it just should not be an issue. It should be easy, easy as. Um, foals. So, again, could talk forever on treating foals because I cannot um, emphasise enough the importance of treating foals. Um, this little guy was really upright in his tendons. He, he was on my Facebook page. Um, but what I want you to notice is not even about his front legs, but I want you to notice how his body changed. Like this is over... The just, same fall? Yes, over a month or two. Maximum. I was like, there's got to be two different falls. You're just showing us examples. Nope, same fall. So, and we were treating him for contracted tendons and he ended up having a whole lot of foot issues and everything, but... Look at his body. This is a horse body. This is a gangly foal body. He also had ulcers. He got treated for them as well. The poor little guy, he'd had a really shit time. He'd been stood on. Anyway, same foal. Um, reason, and I have a client now where we, I said to him, I said to them, I will treat your foals like I'll do it for free because I want to treat your foals. And he's like, wow, you're going to be treating every one of our foals from now on. He said, because... There's just, they just grow balanced. Like they don't go gangly. And then they do go gangly, get them treated because you want them to grow. You know, you don't just want to say, oh, he's creep high because he's growing or he's with a high because he's growing. Because um, if you get them treated at that point, balance them up, you're just setting them up for like balanced growth throughout their life. So treating foals um, from about a month old, as long as they don't have any issues, otherwise you treat them younger. Uh, I usually give them two to three treatments maximum, um, and usually that's enough, and then I just see them if they have issues. And what's the, the frequency of the treatments, the two to three treatments? Uh, well, it really depends on my availability, but usually two, two to four weeks, depending on their problems, um, and also depending how big they're growing and how, how difficult they are to handle. Um, but, yeah, like we had a foal recently that um, oh, I'd had a very unusual hind limb gait and, yeah, it was, she wasn't looking good. I've treated her twice, I think, and now she looks pretty, like, pretty normal. <laughs> like, well, we don't tend to think about the trauma of birthing. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, and that's a whole nother... <laughs> It's a whole yeah. other area. Okay. Like it's they, get with the, they get with the trauma. They get pelvic trauma. Um, yeah. They're the most common areas, and that's why we need to address them um, straight away because otherwise we could potentially be setting up for behavioural problems due to pain right. down the track when we're breaking them in 
And it's not a behavioural problem, it's a pain problem because they still have these restrictions that they had as a foal. So I love treating foals because they respond so well. Yeah. Um, and then we've talked about the importance of confirmation and posture and looking at that in the paddock and then thinking, can my horse actually do what I'm asking him to do? Like posturally, confirmationally, can, can they do it? Other things that you need to take into consideration which will affect these is your general horse's health will have a huge influence on training issues. Hooves, um, I mean, I can't recommend the equine documentalist highly enough. Like he is looking at hooves and posture and that's how important that, that connection is and how we need to be addressing them both at the same time. If your hooves are out of balance, your body will be out of balance and then you won't have be able to get horizontal or vertical balance. Saddle fit, bit fit and rider are all going to influence uh, pain and physical issues in your horse. So how do we tell the difference? Uh, always ask why. Listen to your horse. Always ask your horse instead of telling them. So even when I pick up a limb to clean the foot out, if my horse doesn't give me that leg, I'm like, why? Like, because they know that they've done picked up their leg for 20 years, like, 10 years or whatever, like they know what to do. So when I'm treating, if a horse doesn't give me his leg, I'm like, okay, why doesn't he want to take that leg off the ground? Um, why doesn't my horse stand up for me to mount him? Why doesn't my horse go on the float? Why doesn't my horse want me to catch him? Why doesn't my horse, um, I don't know. Why doesn't want to go? Why does he stop when I go in, in this particular arena? Like, why? Um, the other thing you can look at their facial expressions. I don't think facial expressions are always pain related, but they're always discomfort. You know, some, they're not happy about something. So it's figuring out, is it pain related or is it, you know, like they'll screw up their face if a horse doesn't get out of their way. So, you know, it's not always pain related, but if it's happening when you're riding them, you'll want to ask, why, like Patch used to go around, her chin was tight, her lips were tight, her nostrils were flared, like you could see all the muscles in her face. And the day she went around with her ears pricked and her mouth soft, I was like, yay. <laughs> you know, that I'm constantly looking at that to tell me like where, where we're at. And there is a training that you can do called Equifax where you can actually train yourself to recognize the facial expressions. Um, the mannerisms and the behaviour, so knowing, always asking why your horse does something. Horses don't just think about, I'm going to be mean to my rider today and bite her because she's annoying me. Like, they're biting for a reason. They're not wanting to be caught for a reason. They're, you know, they don't have preconceived thoughts. They're just reacting to that moment um, or the previous experiences that are perhaps relating to that moment. Is your horse catching you? It took like over a year for Patch to catch me. Like I'd always have to go down the bottom of the paddock and get her and it always felt like I was just like making her calm. And now she will walk past me and like make a little beeline and say hi and then go back to grazing, you know. And when she does that, I'm like, oh, that's so good that like she wants to interact with me and I'm not the one always forcing those those interactions and we talked about posture and stance and the importance of that in the paddock the tail of the tail <laughs> so look at your horse's tail you know 
Do they swish it? Do they hold it to one side? Do they hold it really high? Do they clamp it between their bum cheeks? You know, the tail can tell you a lot as, as well as the head position. So those two things can really tell you the balance of your horse. Um, we've mentioned symmetry, general well-being, uh, observing that in relation to all the training issues you're, you're getting. The power of observation, you can never over-observe. Um, and don't revert to equipment. So just because your head is up, don't uh, put on a martingale. Don't put on a pessoa. Don't put on side reins. Um, the only kind of equipment that I recommend is T-touch wraps and Equiband. And even then, you want the horse to especially with Equiband, they've still got to be out of function before you use the Equiband. You know, you've still got to, you can't just put that on a horse and go, oh, like you're, you can engage your core now. They still need to be able to do it. Um, don't revert to a different bit because your horse is pulling and getting heavy in the hands, you know. Think about why and, and the times. the issue, right? Yeah, it could be. I saw an example was at a clinic and a horse was being ridden. It was in a Dutch gag and it was on the second ring. And the horse was constantly like, you know, like, and she was constantly pulling on him and he was just, his stride was short and choppy. He couldn't do the canter rails. He was crooked all over the place. The elite rider hopped on. First, he rode him on the same bit and already it was improved. Then he took it off and put it on just the snaffle, straight as a die. Stride yeah. length increased by well over a foot. Did the canter poles relaxed? You know, so that harsher bit was actually creating a problem where and the rider's getting more and more nervous, thinking they need more and more control, but it's actually the opposite. We need to let go. And it's the hardest thing. Like I found that the hardest thing to let go. But um yeah, ask why and let go. Um a quiet mouth and a flowing soft tail is always a good sign of, of a nice and balanced horse. So, so I'd like to yeah. Well, I have a, I just have a question in that if, if you have a horse and you have gone through and you've ruled out pain, you've had people look at the horse and you've ruled it out. And I, I and the reason I'm asking this is I have one of these. Um, he came to me because his owner passed, um, but he is a Welsh cob that has always had a personality of, can I take control? And am I going to let you have some say. Um, and he, you know, he's, he, he's Dr. Joyce Harmon's mother's horse and she passed. He has very good, he right. But he is the kind of guy and that's, you know, when I, when I look at some of these um, haltering, he was going to throw his head up no matter what you did. And so we had to go through a period of being very clear that you put your head down so that it was not dangerous, but his behaviors for lack of a better word, were belligerent for simple, like putting on your halter so you could come in and have your dinner and keeping your head down so that you could go out to the paddock and not hurt someone. Um, and it took, other people were handling them with chains, but it took very clear and strong boundaries. So my point being, I agree with you 99.9% .9 except for I know this horse. <laughs> and I, so like, 
what I would say about this horse, because I have a thoroughbred that came off the track that was absolutely, you know, I was told, what are you doing with this horse? He's dangerous. Um, you know, basically cut your losses. Um, he was labelled as arrogant and stupid on the as a racehorse, but he's the most intelligent horse that I've ever known. So I had to be a very strong leader for him and I did have to set very clear boundaries. Um, and now he's a pussycat, you know. But he... So my thought process would be that at some point this pony has felt that something that has been done to him wasn't okay. Okay, maybe caused pain or it was uncomfortable or, um, you know, he, he, had, he had a problem with it, however that was in his body. And then he's decided that potentially, well, all interactions are going to be like that. And so why would, like, you're not giving me any reason why I want to interact with you and I'm not willing now to give you that option. Do you yeah, know what I mean? I mean so he, but you said he'd been handled in chains. Yeah, well, he came when he was four and he was very dominant and pushy the minute he arrived and he's 17 and he had a lot of years of, 10 years of no real human interaction other than to be fed but okay. he you know he's from the age of four that part of his personality it's been consistent i'm just going huh what happened before he was four I don't know he came up from florida like i would say there's been he's he this something has happened where he's decided interactions with humans are not a positive experience. And then he had 10 years where he didn't interact with humans. So why the hell to him yeah. is a human a positive experience? Like to, they've never done anything for him to make it a positive experience. And it can, it can be very hard to change that mindset because- Well, the thing is, I, you know, the, the piece that you said that I absolutely agree with is he's very bright. And the more I engage him, yeah and set very clear boundaries on yeah. this is the behavior that's acceptable, that it will have, say, standing in the mounting block. In the beginning, it was this huge, now he just walks right up, but it took two months. You know, I have to be yeah. so consistent. But, but that's the key, is consistency and persistence. And if you're inconsistent, this pony would say, bugger off. Yeah. <laughs> and Henry was the same. If I was inconsistent, and if I let him get away with a little bit, He's like, okay, well, I pushed through the gate and I got through, so see ya. And then I'll do it next time. So it was, it was the same type of thing and I had to be very clear and have very strict boundaries. But what I learned was it was the, it's the clearness. Like it's, if, if horses have had mixed signals, even where we don't, can't recognize that we're giving mixed signals. A really intelligent horse gets really pissed off. You know, because they're like, I got it. Like, but now you're asking me a bit like you're, you know, I got it here, but now you're asking, you have to use this much force. And now I don't, now I'm confused because I already gave it to you back here. Mm. And, and, you know, I would say he's super intelligent and, um, he doesn't necessarily have a 
you know, a reason to want to have those interactions as much as some horses do. And, and, and you know, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head, the, the intelligence and, and something happened before I ever met him um, because, I mean, he actually kicked my rib right out of my fourth rib out the back the door one, yeah. just walking up toward near him from, from but anyway, that was a yeah. long time ago. So no one ever trusts him. He's not a trustworthy yes. pony. He will never yes. be a trust, but you know, it's, he's so, when I, and I so agree with you, like say 99.9% .9 of the time, but there are some characters absolutely. that require, and that's all. I'm, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And Henry was the same. He kicked me in the guts because yeah. I, because I, um, I tapped him with the whip and, and his reaction to that was like, bugger off. He stepped on me. He hit me in the head, <laughs> all that. He had no, no reason why I was of any benefit to him whatsoever. No human had been beneficial to him in his eyes. So, you know, why was I any different? And yeah, like, you don't know what happened to him before he was four, but I'd say an experience has set him up to decide well. But if you trust him, so this is the hardest part. <laughs> the hardest part is to trust him um, because if you show him that trust, it will be reciprocated. But it's so hard. It's, it's an ongoing, it's a really interesting relationship. It's so completely different than my horse who is and so, make it fun. And so offended if I say anything, you know, too loud. Um, but it's an interesting contrast. And the, but the consistency with these horses, I think is the key. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, you have to rule out pain, but there are uh, behaviors. There are behaviors that have been shaped by experiences. Yes, thank you. That's yep. well said. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so and then fascinating. Figure out how to break those behaviors because, and this is where, like, yes, it's in the retraining, but it's also in like finding something fun for the horse to do and, yeah, you know, getting their trust and that sort of thing. So they want to, they want to kind of interact with you. And we're getting like, there. to them, they listen to you. <laughs> He, he's um he likes to learn which is great yeah he's been bored for 10 years i think is actually yeah yeah we're gonna have sharon wilsey meet dunny one of these days he's an interesting character yeah that's cool. yeah no it's it, it's yeah important yeah raquel this has been fabulous everybody's really really enjoyed this webinar and um and i do really want to have you come back and talk about scars and what was the other thing oh, uh, hey, foals. foals because yeah, skulls and, foals, foals and scars yeah so um we'll be in touch it's just it's so fabulous of you to share your knowledge and i know that you're a super busy person and um and you do put a lot into preparation for your webinar so i so appreciate your time yeah thank you i just saw a question um why was your pony eating from a high feeder yeah in the first set of photos um yeah, that's to help uh, engage her thoracic sling. So she doesn't eat from a high feed all the time. She eats from it twice a day for 10 minutes. Um, and she has her hay up as well, but she's grazing the other 20 hours of the day. Um, but it's to help change her posture without me having to do anything. 
And that you said comes from uh, Sharon May Davis, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm going to see if I can't get her to come and do a webinar on that. That would be fab. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's lots of, um, lots of stuff there, but good to see some familiar people like Becky. I haven't, haven't got to see her for a long time. <laughs> Thank you so much. And thank you everybody for joining us. Just remember you can see this and all the other webinars on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. Subscribe and you get a notification every time we post another video. On Thursday, we're gonna have Laura Plunkett come back at one o'clock Eastern daylight time. Just remember we're on daylight time here in the United States. So thank you all again for tuning in. Thank you so much, uh, Raquel. It's been great to see you again. Yeah, thanks a lot, Wendy. Thanks everyone. Everybody take care. Bye. Yeah.